This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome, everyone, to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's show, I welcome Bob Ryder and Phil Schaff. Bob and Phil are the directors of Don't Quit, the Joe Roth story. The documentary looks back at the former University of California Berkeley quarterback and 1976 Heisman Trophy favorite Joe Roth, who lost his life to melanoma in 1977, but despite his diagnosis, continued to play his final season and never allowed his disease to break his spirit. In this interview, Bob, Phil, and I discuss Joe's legacy, not only as an athlete, but as a humble and courageous young man who never gave up in the toughest fight of his life. I encourage everyone to check out the documentary, and it can be seen if you have a subscription to Amazon Prime, or you can rent it on Apple TV, YouTube, and Amazon. With that being said, I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And, as always, thank you for listening. So before we get into the uh, nuts and bolts of the documentary, can you guys first describe uh how you first came across joe's story um and not only that but like what was your what was the impact that his story had on you i'm not sure if you guys had the opportunity to see joe play um but can you discuss maybe what it was like for you to hear his story and what impression it left on you after you heard it uh bob we can go ahead and start with you okay well um you know i went to cal and graduated in 1987 which is about uh, 10 years after Joe was there. You know, I've always been a big Cal sports fan, especially football. You know, when I was there, and even years after, I knew a little bit about him, um, but not a ton. I knew there was a memorial game every year, obviously. It was the only retired jersey they ever had. Um, Cal, you know, well, I had a sister going on in 2003. And a couple years later, I ended up uh, reading an article about Joe that was a little, a little bit more detail that I had known about. And I found out that he had died. And I was like, well, you know, I want to find out a little bit more about this guy. So I, uh, you know, did the internet, found these articles, found a book. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing story. Um, I was living in San Francisco. And I ended up bumping into Phil and pitched this documentary approach to Joe's life story because, you know, tell the story better than, you know, his classmates, teammates, coaches, family, friends. So, pitched it to Phil, and we kind of did a little bit more research, and then took off. And, and Phil, what about your story? How did you first hear about Joe? I grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, so I didn't see Joe play in person, but was, you know, a young teenager, and so followed all the sports teams here locally, and his death was such a tragedy. I mean, he, he really was the all-American boy. And he was playing in kind of like a mini golden age of California sports. I mean, the, the Warriors won the NBA championship in 1975. The A's had just come off. You know, three straight World Series victories. The, the Raiders were a perennial contender. So there was a lot of excitement uh, in the East Bay. 
and for East Bay sports stars as personalities. You know, Ken Stabler, Reggie Jackson, Rick Barry. You know, the list kind of went on and on. And, and Joe was a different animal. He was so calm and poised. And the greatness just really leapt off the field when he played. And when he died, it hung over all of Northern California like a pall. And it was, and it was so misunderstood. Melanoma, would, you know, really the field of oncology didn't even exist in 1977. And no one understood really what skin cancer was. And why would it take this guy who was so good looking and so healthy and so young? And at Cal, it's not like Notre Dame or USC where they really venerate their athletic greats. And the emphasis is on other things. But Joe was the one guy that Cal really hung its sort of helmet on. And for all the right reasons. So when I got to Cal, same era as Bob in the early 80s, people didn't really talk about Joe Roth because the sadness was still there. And then when Bob had the idea to use him, to use his story, to talk about melanoma, melanoma awareness, uh, and then we did some research, it really was kind of like a, a regional Brian song in all of the uh, inspirational components that related to his biography. So it's like, this is the, this is the greatest story no one's ever heard. Well, let's, like Bob said, get everyone together who knew him and let them tell it. And it was that simple. Yeah, and when you talk about the greatest story that no one ever heard, I first had heard about Joe when I was doing an episode about the history of football in Japan. And I saw that he would play in the Japan Bowl and that he had played while he was suffering from melanoma and how he had stayed and signed autographs hours after the session had ended to make sure that everyone had gotten one. And whenever I heard it, I, I wanted to go deeper into it, but there wasn't a whole lot out there, if anything. And I'm lucky I, I found the documentary because it allowed me to go deeper into his life story. And I, I'm curious if you guys have any ideas or opinions as to what took so long to get a long-form story about Joe out there. Bob, why do you like that one? Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of, you know, ideas that, you know, were presented for biopics, feature films, you know, more detailed books. Um, it, you know, they just didn't get to the finish line. And, you know, that was the frustrating thing about learning about that. It's like, you know, somebody's got to do something, um, you know, and it's, I think it's easier to make a documentary now than it used to be. And... You know, it's, you need as many resources as you do for some of the other bigger ideas. But, you know, it's just something, you know, we had the passion to get done. And, you know, there wasn't going to be anybody who tell us we couldn't do it. You know, at the end of the process, we thought, you know, at the very least, we'll have a video archive of people talking about Joe um, that, you know, we could present to the university or do something with. So we just got going and, you know, pieces fell into place. People lined up and uh, got the family on board first. That was the most important thing because if they said they didn't want us to do it, probably wouldn't do it, but, you know, they bought into it. And, you know, we took off from there. And it was, you know, it was, it was a tough thing to do, you know, for just the two of us. I mean, I tell you, Phil's got much better background and skill set to this kind of thing than I do. But he was the perfect partner to have. But, um, you know, that's, that's how it started, and 
Uh, did did you? Did either of you? You brought up an interesting point here, and I, I just want to jump in. You mentioned the Japan Bowl. That was 34 days before Joe died. And Joe's melanoma wasn't just like, well, he had a little spot of cancer. It was overrunning his body. He had tumors on his spine. He had cancer in every lymph node. It was on major chemotherapy treatments. And this is in an era when it was so crude that the chemotherapy was an overwhelming thing. Like, they were worried about patients receiving it because that might kill them. But that's how dire his circumstances were. So to be in Japan playing football 34 days before he died, uh, 24 days before he became a cripple, and they were thinking about removing his legs. I mean, he really was, as they say, out there like on his shield. I mean, he could barely move, and he's playing football with Tony Dorsett, Ricky Bell, and other greats of his generation. And the players that were there in Japan and the coaches, they were so blown away by his humility, his grace. No one knew just how sick he was. They just knew that he was sick. And then when he died so so soon thereafter, that's when they realized that, oh my God, he was carrying around in this invisible burden, as his brother Tom Robbins would refer to as an invisible sack of rocks. So the Japan Bowl in 1977 was a really pivotal thing for him to participate in. And it was also something important for his teammates and his colleagues in the football community to observe. And and so it's really interesting that you are a fan of football in Japan. And, of course, the Japan Bowl named their MVP award after him because the Japanese had so much respect for the way he conducted himself at this really uh, dire set of, through this dire set of circumstances that was, that was were challenging his life. Yeah, and by the time that he had played in Japan, and this is something you guys point out in the documentary, you know, Joe was always a thin guy to begin with, but when you see him by the time he gets to, to the Japan Bowl, you know, he really looks real thin, and it's really mind-boggling to think how anybody could play football under those circumstances, how his body must have just been giving out, but the way that he really powered through it and really just wanted to do it, you know, for his teammates and just to enjoy the game and life itself. I mean, it's really inspiring to see how committed he was despite what was going on. Yeah, he was just grateful to be able to play football. Um, that's what people said about him. And just about the Japan Bowl, uh, one of his teammates said they had to take his shoes off after the game because he could yeah, and and about doing it as a documentary as opposed to a feature film or doing a book, I think it was perfect because I think when you have a feature film, you, you have to kind of run the risk of using a creative license. So I think maybe in, in some regards, his story would have been altered. And I think football being a visual game, it's better to have footage as opposed to reading about it, you know? So as far as choosing to do a documentary, I think that was definitely a great choice. And when you guys had got together and decided to do the documentary, you know, what was the first order of business? I know you mentioned Bob, that you had to reach out to Joe's family to, you know, get their blessing to do it. What was that like to um, approach them? You know, had they had people that wanted to do something like this in the past, how did you kind of communicate with them about your intentions for the film? Well, the first thing we did is we wanted to prepare. They, Lena Ross lived up in, uh, in Washington and has did, Tom Roth and his wife, uh, Kim. So that was where we were going to head. And, you know, Lena had written a book about Joe that came out in the 80s. And 
I scrambled up a copy off of Amazon and we read it like 10 times each. And we just wanted to, to have the whole story straight and look like we were prepared to do what we wanted to do. So we flew up there and met with, you know, no cameras, no team, just, you know, a couple of us and met with Lena and pitched her on the idea. And, you know, she said, she was talking about how scripts were written about made for TV movies and uh, feature films and they just never got going. And some of them she didn't like, she said, but she said she liked this approach and, you know, this is the last time anybody's going to do something like this. So you, you, you can do it. Same thing that Tom said, you know, how are you going to tell the story? It's like, you guys are going to tell the story. You know, you've got all these details and whatnot. And they said, okay. And two weeks later, we, Scrambled up a team, production team, and headed, uh, headed back to Washington with, you know, cameras, mics, And after you had spoken to the family, because you had a lot of people that you interviewed, you know, you had former teammates, you had uh, his former coaches. Were, were there anybody in particular besides his family that you really wanted to hear from first? I think the key was to sequence Joe's life. And that meant get everybody who was germane to the story. The key people were those who were there really to the end so they could connect all the aspects of his biography together. I mean, he died 99 days before his birthday. And he had melanoma in junior college, so so it came back. So the real story was from when he first got melanoma till when he died. And so it was sequencing all of the key people that kind of helped get him to the next stage, whether meant getting from Grossmont College and San Diego to Cal. Uh, so that was that, that involved the coaches. And then when he played, well, we wanted to go into the huck. We wanted to get as many guys that were on that great 75 team that beat USC on that, the defending national champion, the undefeated USC Trojans on national TV. That was kind of Joe's coming out party. I mean, the funny thing, Aaron, that when people, if you watch the, the game, the brief broadcast of that game, all of the production was done on USC, on Ricky Bell, on, on, on that aspect of the game. No one knew anything about Joe Roth. No one paid any attention to Cal. It was about... Uh, USC, but as the game wore on, Cal was winning and playing great. And it's like, well, who's this Joe Roth guy? So they got a camera guy down on the sidelines, you know, to get close up with him and his teammates. And it was really funny. And so it was getting those pieces together. And the interesting thing is that when you call and you leave messages for whether it's a former player or a coach or a personality in the game, Everybody got back to us right away. In that USC game, for example, Gary Jeter, who was an All-American defensive tackle uh, for the Trojans and then went on to play, you know, 13 years in the NFL, uh, he called us back in eight minutes. And everybody said the same thing, was, I've been waiting for this phone call all my life. We can't wait to sit down and talk about Joe Roth because he was such a nice kid and he was a great player, but he was a better human being. So then the word kind of got out because of Bob's approach to get the family's approval, to get Cal behind it, and then athletic director uh, Sandy Barber, who's now at Penn State University, she laid out her criteria. Uh, Mike White, Joe's former coach, was on board. 
he was a big help in that process. And and then the ball just sort of kept rolling on its own. And as we went through the interviewing process, more people would come get recommended, hey, you got to talk to this person, you got to talk. So it was fun. It was it was like a archaeological dig into the biography of some of this football player who, you know, in the mid-1970s, so it was a lot of fun from that perspective. Yeah, it, it seems kind of like a case where the project, in a way, takes a life of its own. Because obviously, whether you're writing a book or doing a documentary or writing a screenplay, you always have certain things you want to include, but I think as you go further along with either research or inspiration, you find a lot more that you can include. And I think it just kind of brings to life, you know, the project, the project comes to life in many ways that maybe you didn't even anticipate. And I think that could be just as good for the the writer, the filmmaker as it can be for the viewer. And one other point on that, Aaron, is that because the story drifted, it wasn't about scandal. It wasn't about athletic greatness. It was about mortality, death, and really tough subjects. It was very sensitive. So when you know we interviewed people, it was they were lengthy, long interviews. You know, up ninety minutes, two hours, because people were summoning emotions that were very challenging. And you know, there were thirty-five years in the past at the time, and so it was it was very emotional. Virtually everybody cried, and so you really us. Uh, with your interview subjects, because if they thought you were going to exploit Joe's memory somehow, they didn't want anything to do with that. Because, again, the approach was to just let other people tell his story in their own words. Uh, They were willing to cross that bridge to trust us and to reveal uh, so many great thoughts and feelings uh, and memories about this young man, Joe Roth. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as I'm watching the documentary, you, know, you see a lot of different guys, uh, his teammates and his coaches tear up when they talk about him. And, you know, it, it seems very, um, you know, heartwarming to see that a guy, you know, even many years after the fact that he still has this effect. So uh, when you guys were doing these uh, interviews, you know, was there one particular interview or maybe just one moment during the production process that you guys really understood the impact that Joe had, not only as a football player, but on those around him as a human being? Bob, why don't you go, why don't we both? Yeah, yeah, both of you. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll both have to talk about one guy. What's important to remember is that, you know, back in the 70s when Joe passed away, I mean, there was no self-help books, there was no therapy for for his teammates and his classmates and his friends. I mean, there's one team doctor, um, you know, they just didn't have any sort of counseling or anything like that. You know, I, I think Mike White, you know, talked to him a little bit about it, but, you know, he's moving on. And like, you know, some people said, you know, it was like there's this dark cloud over Berkeley for months. Um, and, you know, it was cathartic for a lot of the, his teammates when they talked about him and it was emotional for him and, you know, one of them said, okay, the box is open now. Um, I can talk about this. You know, and, and you know, it was it was tough for some of them. And, you know, we, we really appreciated them opening up about, you know, their stories with Joe and, and how they felt. Um, but, you know, is, was there one in particular you were thinking of, Bill? Interview? Yeah, I... For me, Fred Bastana was uh, another quarterback uh, who played in the NFL, very t- incredibly talented guy. I mean, Cal probably had the two best quarterbacks 
in the Pac-8, then Pac-8, and on the same team. And only one quarterback can play. And Fred actually was the starter at the beginning of the season. And through no fault of his own, Joe kind of became the starter because they wanted both guys to play. And, and Joe kind of got in a hot streak. And But Fred and Joe were best friends. They competed as quarterbacks and as players. But they were roommates on the road. Uh, they did things. They socialized off the field. You know, they hung out. They went and, you know, had beers and pizza, you know, ran errands together. And Fred, to interview him and to get his perspective because he was so close to Joe as a human being, but knew what he was going through as a quarterback uh, as well, really, there was only one guy with that perspective. And what made it dramatic was that he, Fred really rose to the occasion and revealed everything he had to say about those times. And, and Fred's, like Joe, an incredibly modest, humble guy. And he had so much, or still does, has so much love for Joe that to watch him ruminate and to express how he felt in those days and now looking back, to me, I, I think he is the most fascinating person in the film and for all the right reasons. Yeah, and being able to, I mean, I, I like the interview guys or the whenever Chuck Muncie was on talking about Joe as well. And, you know, having Tony Dungy and Barkowski, I mean, some of these guys obviously have played with them. And even a guy like Dungy, who knew him very briefly, you know, it, it shows that even in a short amount of time that he left this kind of uh, powerful impressions on people. Right. Yeah, and, one, and one other guy who, uh, I thought was interesting in terms of impressions is, you know, we didn't even know there was a connection to Tony Dungy until Mike Webb told us during the whole process. And, mm. you know, we're obviously, you know, okay, we got to see Tony somehow. But anyway, when Tony mentions, you know, he, he knew him for three weeks, you know, but you, you couldn't be around Joe and not feel like you were his, his friend. You know, the impact that he had on Tony was... You know, incredible. And in fact, Tony had sent him a Western Union telegram, you know, when he was, he was in the hospital um, in San Francisco. And then he called him the, the day before he passed away. Mm. Um, I thought that connection was, was powerful. Right. And, and, and Tony sent him a telegram. I mean, talk about different days, Aaron. I mean, yeah. well, <laughs> I did. When's the last time a telegram was sent? But Tony just sent him a telegram saying, hey, it was so great to meet you, praying for you, hope you get better. Meeting you was so important to me. And and that just shows, I mean, you look now, Tony is, you know, really one of the largest figures in football for the totality of his life, for his mentoring skills, his, his acumen, his analysis, his own legacy as a player and coach. Uh, but the fact that a guy like Tony Benji wanted to talk about an obscure person that almost no one has heard of outside of Berkeley shows just what a persuasive personality Joe Roth had, and again, for all the right reasons. Another kind of cool story is uh, Joe played in a very memorable game in Norman, Oklahoma against the Sooners, and so we wanted to interview Barry Switzer. We got a hold of him, and Coach Switzer said, I knew Joe Roth for three hours on a Saturday. If you want to come to Norman 
and talk, ask me about that young man, I'd be honored to talk about him. Wow. So it's that kind, yeah, that kind of respect that people have for players and people who do things the right way, and that was Joe Roth. And, and going off his personality, you know, I, I think people from that era may remember Joe as as the quarterback, and they might be familiar with his story and admire it. But can you guys talk about, and Bob, we can start with you, like what kind of a home did he come from? And like, what were some of his influences in his life that really gave him this sort of inner strength to be able to confront something that would ultimately take his life? Like, where did that sort of persistence within him come from? Well, I think he had a you know great set of parents. And I think what was interesting about his, his upbringing was that, you know, his brother John was 14 years older than he was. His brother Tom was 11. And, you know, I think a lot of his maturity and the way he carried himself was helped out by, you know, the, the age difference between his brothers. You know, I think about, you know, my brother. He was a couple of years younger, and I picked on him a lot, you know, everything like that. I kind of doubt that happened in his household. But... You know, he's kind of a family and friend, and he gives, you know, the work ethic, his father, you know, and the respect he had for his mother, um, all helped him you know, handle what happened to him a little bit easier than some. And and Joe was always that way, Aaron. He, there's a famous story where at the age of 14, uh, Mrs. Roth, Lena, is sitting in the living room, the door knocks, there's a guy at the door, never seen this person before, he's a parent of another, of a classmate of Joe's, uh, this parent is concerned that his son is kind of hanging out with the wrong kids on campus, and says, well, you know, my son really respects Joe, he really likes him, and could Joe maybe, you know, spend a few minutes just talking to him, and take him under his wing a little bit, and maybe point him in a different direction, and... So Mrs. Ross says, well, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that to Joe, and uh, I'll see what he said. So she mentions it to Joe. He says, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to so-and-so, and, and of course he did, and, and he kind of got that kid on, the, on a better beam, and when he died, you know, seven years later, that young man went to Joe's funeral in Berkeley from Southern California because he was so grateful for his friendship at that critical time of his life and and he was that kind of guy he always kind of sort of intuitively knew the right thing to do and he wasn't trying to be cool that way he just was he was a good man who had a moral compass and didn't need to try to promote himself or try to persuade anybody to a belief system he was just a good guy who had that internal radar and sense of kindness and compassion, and he showed it throughout every situation he encountered. Yeah, yeah. yeah and his mom, his mom kind of summed up. You know, at the end of the film, she said, "You know, he wanted to be like everybody else. He just wanted to be, you know, an ordinary Joe, but he was different." 
Yeah, and just whenever you hear stories like this, you know, you just get the sense that if you were, you know, he he's kind of the all-American kid that I think that everybody has been trying to find, you know, since sports has really become such a dominant force in American culture, right? You know, he's a guy that he's a good-looking guy, but he he's great at his respective position and his respective sport, but he also just carries himself as a humble guy off the field and, you know, for a guy that he knew and had to talk to that looked up to him and attended his funeral seven years later. It it just shows that I I think the guy really wanted to get to know people and never really viewed himself as better than anybody else. He was just one of the guys or, you know, just one of any people that wanted to talk, you know, he seemed like he had the uncanny ability to empathize and relate with people, even though there's plenty of people in his shoes that wouldn't. That's exactly right, Aaron. Eye contact. Here's another great story. Uh, the women's sports, right, didn't come around until the 70s and because of Title IX. And they, the Cal volleyball team, the women's volleyball team just started playing. Uh, they were practicing in then Harmon Gymnasium. Uh, some other athletes, male athletes, were hectoring and kind of being bullies to some young ladies who were practicing. I mean, this would never happen today, but this is. This is 1976, and this is what was going down, and, and Joe sees it, and he walks over to these guys and goes, hey, what are you doing? And they thought that he would join in, like, hey, this is great fun. You know, we're teasing these girls. And Joe just said, don't do that. You know, they play for the same school we do. They're wearing blue and gold just like us. Knock it off. And he just walked away, and that was it. That was it. He you know, he didn't try to act like a tough guy. He just said, hey, knock it off. You know, they play for the same school as us. He he just knew how to treat people, and he was a decent guy, and he was authentically that way everywhere he went, whenever you met him, no matter who you were, whether you were uh, another great football player, whether you were another student on campus or just the guy in the street, he was the same to everybody, and he had no pretense about himself whatsoever but everyone who looked at him thought oh my god here's the all-american kid and he was he was on the cover of the nc2a media guide for the 1976 season you know ahead of tony dorsett ahead of ricky bell i mean he that's the kind of attention that he attracted but he really had no interest in cultivating it remarkable and when you guys were going and producing the documentary, what was was there anything that surprised you about Joe? I just remember doing the research up front, going, "Okay, what did he do? You know, where's the bad thing? Where's that story that I'm going to read about? It, you know, it it just never happened." And it was universal across the board. Everybody was talking about how he was off the field and what he was left with. You know, cared a lot more about you than he cared about himself. Um, anyway, you want to add the, the production stuff, Bill? Well, and yeah, it's the same sentiment. I mean, it, it's just like Bob said. You're okay. You, you need to know the whole story, Aaron. Right? You're you're documenting this guy's life so you got to know if there are any skeletons in the closet <laughs> you, you, you want to get the whole thing out you, right you, whatever the story is you need to know it so you can contextualize and be accurate because the one thing 
in, in a biography of somebody's life, in a documentary, people are going to call you out if you get something wrong. And what Bob said from the get-go was, hey, we got to tell the right story so no one questions this, so that everybody can agree that we got it right. And so as you kept digging, you would keep going, keep going, and there was no other side of the coin. He really was that way. And in a world where no one can agree on anything, everybody agreed that Joe was the one thing you could agree on, and it was overwhelmingly positive. There was not one negative word about him. Everybody felt the exact same way. I mean, people didn't remember just knowing him. They remember the first time they saw him. Like, oh yeah, I was sitting in class and he walked in. Who's that? Or, you know, he, he walked in the locker, quiet guy. He, he never said anything. I mean, but you felt his presence and Paul Hackett, who was his quarterback coach and then went on to a long and distinguished career as a coach at the league and professional level, he said that about Joe was that what made him so great was that he was interested in other people, that he knew all about himself, that because he knew himself so well, he could then focus on everyone around him. And in a team sport environment, that's where leadership comes from. So I thought that was a really fascinating observation. and probably very accurate. Now, I know in the documentary, you guys talk about um, the letters that he wrote to his girlfriend, Tracy, at the time. Um, but did, did Joe ever keep like a journal or ever put into writing, maybe like in his essays or um, in any other format, like what his thoughts were about his diagnosis or any opinions he had about football or life or family? Did you guys ever find anything resembling that? few letters that he traded with uh, his junior college teammate, Tom Saska. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a handful of those, and there were a couple to his brother, but we never found anything like a journal or anything like that, or anything that he'd written down about his feelings. But he did write all of his friends. I mean, he, and if kids wrote him, uh, you know, care of the athletic department, and said, hey, like there was this one kid also named Joe Roth who was a high school football player, and and Joe and he were like pen pals. And Joe Roth, the Cal quarterback, would encourage Joe Roth, the high school player in Pennsylvania, and then the high school Joe Roth, his mother threw out all those letters in a box and uh, to the chagrin of Joe Roth the younger. But he, he valued people and made the effort to connect, not in a casual way, he, yeah, would write people, and he would ask about them, not talk about himself. That really was the remarkable thing, was that he was, again, always more interested in the other person than he was in himself. Yeah, and it's interesting when you have kind of a, a posthumous biography of someone and whenever they can go and they find old letters or old journals and you can really got to see what a person was thinking. And especially for someone like Joe, who was always selfless with other people, you always kind of wanted to know, or, or at least I, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, what were some of his opinions about things that um, that we don't know him for? You know, uh, obviously he had opinions, you know, about football or life, family. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, if he ever did keep a journal, you know, what were some things that he would, you know, kind of write about and, 
things that he would reflect on because for someone to have his sort of wisdom well beyond his years, I got to think that he would have had some really interesting insights that would have been good for people even today to hear. Well, he, I'll t- he did counsel people and give advice to be yourself, to don't, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. He said that, for example, to Tracy, yeah, the, the young lady that you referred to, that, I mean, in that birthday card he sent her, that was the last independent thing he did in his life. Her birthday was uh, Valentine's Day, 1977. It was her 21st birthday. And literally on that day, you know, he was a cripple. But he got a birthday card, wrote a, a very personal and nice message to her. Uh, again, it was it was very uplifting con- considering his circumstances. And that was the last thing he did. But he always encouraged people to be themselves, to have the strength of their own conviction to not have to be, to to conform to a convention or go along with something if they didn't believe in it. And and he empowered people in that way. Yeah, most definitely. There's there's, there's one more uh, thing to add is that there's one of his his teammates who I think was a freshman at the time, their spring camp, or their fall camp uh, before the season, um, and this guy had a girlfriend up in Sacramento, and he went to go visit her one night. He got lost coming back, and so he he missed the curfew and got in trouble. You know, he's you know doing his his uh, he's getting back into his car. Joe's walking by, and he thinks that Joe's just gonna give him a hard time. So he looks in the car, and he sees like all these maps spread out. He's trying to you know when he's trying to find his way back to. Uh, to camp, and you know, Joe just said she must be something special. <laughs> yeah, and he he's been, ended up marrying her, so that's what he said. Yeah, why well, he's got a he yeah he he seems like a guy that definitely had a good sense of humor, and you would have to, I would imagine, if you were in that position. And he did it at twenty one years of age, Aaron. He, you know, the maturity was off the chart. I mean, I, really, people in their sixties don't have the maturity that Joe had at such a young age and and that that's again just remarkable yeah and and to go off the you know his wisdom and you know his leadership what i thought was interesting is when i was watching the documentary how many of his coaches and his peers really felt that he was someone who was ahead of his time at the quarterback position you know people talk about he had like the coolness of joe montana and he had the release of dan marino um, and a lot of people say he would have been a surefire to get to the NFL prior to his diagnosis. And you guys had uh, Gil Brandt, who was the scouting director for the Cowboys, who had even said that they would probably would have drafted him for the 1977 draft. Um, what do you think when you guys watch him play? Like, what about him stands out to you that really showcases the talent that Joe had as a quarterback? Well, the before we interviewed anybody we rolled highlight tapes you know, highlights uh, you know highlight tape of joe and all the throws right and all the stuff that's in the movie and then more you know we had another five minutes so people would just these coaches you know whether you're 
Paul Hackett or Al Saunders or Roger Theater or Mike White, you know, they, they would get Tony Dungy, you know, Barry Switzer. They, you know, they, they've seen thousands of hours of film. The last thing they want to do is watch more film, but they're very curious when somebody really jumps off the tape. And that's what Joe did. Uh, Vince Ferragamo, who went to Cal and then Nebraska, of course, before going to the NFL and having a very good career himself, he compared him to Tom Brady. He said, well, in today's NFL, Joe is most like Tom Brady. Because he wasn't the swiftest guy, but he moved around enough in the pocket, made great decisions, great release, could throw all the different kinds of balls that you need. Uh, I think the interesting thing to entertain about Joe as a player would be, well, what team would he go to? Because that era was still, a, you know, the running game was the way people won in the NFL in the mid-'70s. But, of course, it wasn't too much longer thereafter that Bill Walsh became the head coach of the 49ers and a whole new different style of, of play emerged. And that was the kind of style of play that Joe would have excelled at. Uh, he, the timing, the anticipation, the quick release, and the smarts, and, again, the leadership – uh, the belief that his teammates had in him was would have carried over at the professional level. And yeah, no one will ever know, but he really would have been the face of a franchise. He would have been you know, really the number one or two guy taken. And he might have gone on to greatness that very few people have ever experienced. But, of course, he didn't get there because of melanoma. Yeah, I was. I actually went on YouTube and I watched uh, some of his games. I I actually watched that game where he upset USC, and it, it was fun to watch. You know, I mean, I I love watching old vintage games, um, and to see Joe have that poise, you know, in the game when it was still, you know, kind of neck and neck, and you know, defense was dominating in that early game, and then you know, Joe just kind of hits these passes over the middle. You know, he he's seen the field well, and you just can't help but think, you know, I really do wonder what what his legacy would have been, you know, a, as a player, if he would have been able to survive and go on to the NFL. And that was only his fourth game as starting quarterback for the Cal Bears, that SC game. The next week he threw for 380 yards and four times against the Washington Huskies. Again, in 1975, teams were throwing for 80 yards a game, not 380. Mm -hmm. and, and there was only one team doing it. And that a lot of that credit goes, of course, to his teammates. You know, Chuck Muncie was on that team, Wesley Walker, Steve Rivera, a lot of great players. Uh, Mike White was the head coach, a very forward, you know, one of Bill Walsh's best friends. So there was, you know, Roger Theater, Paul Hackett, there was a lot of talent on the staff. So it was everybody coming together. And it was that, it was true synergy. People talk about synergy. That was an instance where it really existed. Yeah. yeah they, they led the uh, NCAA in uh, total offense that year. Wow. So they had they had a lot of weapons. And the interesting thing is that it was equal number of passing and rushing yards, like 2,522 of both. But they were good. Yeah, that's, that's what you would strive for as an offense, total balance, right? Yeah, it, it, it would be curious to see, too. I mean, you mentioned him going to Bill Walsh would have suited him perfectly. I'm kind of curious to see if he would have gone to maybe San Diego as well and be reunited with Muncie. Because I know Don Coriel was more of a deep ball guy, but 
I think that would have been cool to see him going back to San Diego and be able to play for another forward-thinking coach like Coriel was. Right, right. And a lot of coaches would have been excited to have had him. And that's what makes it a tragedy. So when people say, well, I've never heard of Joe Roth, like one of the, I remember one of the things Bob said when we first talked was, well, and the dots we want to connect is, well, the reason we haven't heard about him is because of this awful disease called melanoma. And that was really, that brought it all full circle, is that this obscure or little known disease, but it, you know, one American dies every hour from melanoma. And it really is a dangerous cancer because your skin is your largest organ. And that's why this exceptional human being, this great player, wasn't with us beyond really 21 years and three and 266 days. That's all he had. Yeah, and after his passing, uh, when you guys had met Joe's family, um, did they ever talk about? Because obviously, a tragedy like that, you know, it, it's going to stick around forever. And you know, I've had people close to me who have lost children before. How did his family cope with what had happened to Joe? Because in the moment, everything can just kind of go sideways. Everything just seems like it's in the middle of a free fall. But like, what did they do to really recover and to really do to celebrate the life he did have on Earth? Well, I mean, one thing that happened right away, which I think helped, is that, you know, they retired Joe's jersey the next season. Mm-hmm. You know, and the team wore a patch, number 12, with basically courage on it. And the Ross attended most of the Memorial Games, which started right right after that. And, you know, the Memorial Game is either against USC or UCLA. It depends on which team comes up for a home game at Cal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and the fact that you know, Cal embraced that and that, um, you know, they started a scholarship fund for student-athletes. Um, but I know it was tough for them. Um, you know, the Ross, Lena and Larry were up in Jerome, Idaho at the time. And, you know, it was probably a lonely place to be, um, disconnected from, you know, both their other sons. One was down in Southern California and the other was in Washington. So, you know, I, I never really heard much about coping mechanisms from either the brothers or Lena. Larry had passed away by the time we started, so mm-hmm. did you, uh, Phil? Or? Well, the one thing Lena said is that no one would talk to her about it. No one would mention Joe. It was like, it was so sad and that no one approached the subject. And she said, looking back, she wished that somebody had just mentioned like, Hey, I, you know, I thought of Joe today or, or how are you dealing with it? And for years it was really her solitary, uh, sort of sentence that she had to just grieve independently. And as Bob referenced earlier, like in, in regards to the team, there wasn't an outreach. There was no team doctor, psychologist, or, or gathering, you know, a, a religious figure or anybody to say, Hey, how are we going to grieve about this guy? And we're, we're a lot better as a society in terms of grieving about losing people or transitioning. And for the Roth family, they really had to gut it out on their own. And I think when we went and we interviewed people, this was what was so remarkable was that the feelings were still raw. They were still fresh. And people would, 
you would call them and you've never met them, Aaron. You'd have no idea. They don't even know what you look like. And they would have to put the phone down because they're crying. And they're, they would say, Rob Lytle, the late Rob Lytle, we interviewed him nine weeks before he died. I called him. He was working at a bank in, <laughs> in north, uh, northern Ohio, in Fremont, Ohio. And he goes, I got to put the phone down and cry for a minute. And I'll be right back. And that's what he did. He put the phone down. And I heard him cry. And he comes back. And he goes, that might happen again. And, and this, was, this went on a lot because he was frozen in time for a lot of these individuals at a young age. And then they, everyone, as Bob said earlier, had to move on. And part of what this film did for them was it allowed them to revisit this. And through the lens of having lived you know, decades beyond, and it was a healthy thing for everybody. And that was a very cool and unexpected uh, externality from uh, the endeavor. Yeah, and... The thing that the family shared with us is they got a handful of letters from... They got a letter from Bart Starr, who at the time was the head coach and general manager with the, the Packers. They got a letter from President Ford, a letter from uh, Vice President Rockefeller, um you know, and a handful of other people. And, you know, they're all typed out. And, you know, I don't know. It, it, you know, goosebumps when you read them. Yeah, that's that's something that's very impactful. And, I mean, per- personally for me, whenever I – at the moment when the film started to resonate with, with me is whenever they started reading the Don't Quit poem. And I didn't, I didn't know going into it that the name of the documentary was titled after that poem. But it was actually a poem I heard when I was in eighth grade. Um, I think it was in eighth grade, and you know, it, it came at a time in which you know there was different struggles going on in my life. And when I heard it, I actually had heard it on an NFL Network documentary. And I used to have the stand, the last stanza, uh, hanging up in my room. You know, when when things seem worst, um, you must not quit. And to me, it was something that always had stuck with me and left an impact on me. And when I heard that Joe had relied on that, you know, it, to me, it really had a way for me to connect with it, I guess. Obviously my problems weren't nearly as big as his, but still being able to know that that same poem has given someone with such hardship, the power to, to continue, if you will. Well, that's a powerful story, Aaron, to share. And thank you so much. And, it, what's interesting is that when we interviewed people, that poem, the original copy that people had because they handed it out at his funeral, uh, was still, you know, hanging in people's homes in their offices. You know, it's a little bit worn and tattered through the years, but it meant a lot to them too. And when he, there was, a, he was in a public speaking course, a Rhetoric 160, taught by this guy Fred Strip. And Joe, very quiet. I mean, he was like Joe DiMaggio. You know, he didn't say a lot. You know, John Stockton. You know, these Barry Sanders, these kinds of personalities. But he got up and he read that. And he never really talked about his cancer publicly. But that was his statement. And he did it in front of a classroom of 100 people. And the folks that we interviewed who were in that room, I mean, it was the most riveting experience of their lives. There was a, a gentleman who was on the basketball team, and he was a freshman. Joe was a senior, and this freshman kid heard that poem, and he was so moved by the experience. And it was just really two, two and a half, three weeks before Joe died. 
And this guy uh, named Dan went up to Idaho to meet the family because that poem was so evocative and that experience. So six months after he was in the classroom in that summer of 77, he drove and it wasn't like there was GPS and you had the internet, you could find people. It was an effort to find the wrong yeah. family in 1977 in Jerome, Idaho from you know the Bay Area. So it was, it was the kind of, what made that moment in the movie so special was that it really was powerful. And we had an artist named Sean Mullins, a Grammy nominated artist, take that poem and turn it into that song. And Sean did such a beautiful and moving rendition. Um, and that it really does convey what went on that day in January of 77. Yeah. I mean, Phil, do you want to tell the story about Robin Earl passing through Jerome? <laughs> well, what were you, 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 unless you do, Bob, I'll let you do it. <laughs> Robin Earl was at the University of Washington, great player, ended up playing professionally for the Chicago Bears um, and in the USFL as well. He won the MVP in the Japan Bowl that Joe played in. Okay. And Joe uh, and Robin had never really met until those series of all-star games. And Robin had was just married and his wife was pregnant and they were in Hawaii for the Hula Bowl just prior to the Japan Bowl, and they were going down an escalator, and Joe was going up, and Robin's wife, you know, saw Joe, and, and really, he, he really was like a Hollywood handsome, striking gentleman. And the wife, and, and Robin and Joe waving each other, hey, Joe, hey, Robin, the wife is like elbowing Robin, like, who's that? You know, who, who is that guy? You know, that's Joe Ross. He's a quarterback. He goes to UC Berkeley. And so, of course, the wife wants to investigate who this, like, tall, Tom Cool collected and poised guy is. So she meets Joe, and she and Robin and Joe become great friends and just overwhelmed at how authentic he is. And then they find out he has cancer because the story broke while they're in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So this really nice guy is has got this threatening disease, and yet he's sitting there having coffee and, you know, just being a great guy. They go to Japan, they get to know each other over those couple of weeks really well, and then of course Joe dies. Well, Robin gets drafted by the Chicago Bears in the third round, and he's leaving Seattle to drive to training camp, uh, which is in Illinois, and they go right through Jerome. They want to see the Roth family, pay their respects. I mean, how cool is that? Right. So by this time, the baby is born, and they go in, and they got a little baby, and they named their their baby after Joe. Wow. And Mr. and Mrs. Roth gave the Earl family um, Joe's baby spoon. So <laughs> who names their kid after somebody that they just know for two weeks? I mean, this that's who Joe Roth was, and that was how powerful his the impression he made because he, again, he was so authentic and he was just a darn good guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, listening to you guys, you, you still have like the passion, like as if you're still putting together a documentary for it. You know, do you guys have any other plans, I guess, in other ways to tell Joe's story or anything more that you want to do? Bob's the brain of the operation. So it's all about him. <laughs> 
Yeah. Is there a sequel? Um, you know, no plans to add any more content or do anything like that, but we're still pushing it out to, uh, to people on Amazon, Google Play, and iTunes. Um, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to have happen when it came out um, was, I mean, it got on TV with the Pac-12 network, mm-hmm. you know, both national and regional. I think they showed it like uh, 10, 12 times. But I really wanted to get it off a sports platform. So, you know, we approached uh, the local public broadcasting service uh, network here, KQED. Mm-hmm. You know, they show a lot of historical documentaries, the Ken Burns stuff, all sorts of stuff, and pitched it to them. And they said they would do it. And they said, you know, it's an 85 minutes, so you got to cut it down to 55 to get on the main channel. Like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to open it back up. And, right. You know, go through that exercise. They said, okay, that's fine. We'll put it on KQED Plus, the KQED World. And we'll show it a couple times on each. So, they, you know, they did that. And then all of a sudden, it showed up on the main channel. And I'm guessing it was because they got a lot of feedback from their audience or people within the organization that it didn't matter what the length was, they needed to show it. Nice. Do you guys still... Okay, that was cool. Go ahead. No, it's a story. You don't have to like football to like this story. It, 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 it is an evergreen in industry parlance. It's always relevant. It's always something that will make you feel better about humanity just to know that somebody was like this amongst us and he had all those attributes just sort of effortlessly at his fingertips that he could manifest and express and these are things we all aspire to be right to be kind to be humble to be to be care to care about our fellow humans and and that's why the story is really fun because sports fans love it for the accuracy the historical uh, context, the greatness that he had, but anybody who likes just a good story can identify with Joe's sort of personal ambition, the way he wanted to treat other people, and so there's something for everybody in it, and whether you like sports or not, and that's what makes it so so great. Do you guys still receive comments from viewers talking about how how much they liked it or how much it impacted them? Yeah, I mean, I just got an email today um, from a woman who wanted to buy a DVD. She said she got, uh, she just watched it on Amazon and it had such an impact on her. You know, she was going through some struggles in her life. She wanted a DVD to be available so she could, you know, plug it in and, and see the film and make her feel better. Um, and we had, at a time, we were selling a bunch of DVDs. Um, but it's, you know, that slowed down. A lot of people don't use that format anymore. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple still here, um, you know, and I'll write her back and tell her I'll send her one. Um, but there are other people too that, you know, said, Hey, thank you for making this film. I was there. You know, it was, you know, handwritten notes. Um, and, you know, a lot of people that will bump into maybe over at, you know, on campus at a game or something like that will say, I was at that basketball game the day he passed away. Mm. You know, I remember that like it was yesterday. Um, yeah, and people, uh, so at the end, of course, 
Karen. Uh, we have a little vignette that Jim Breach, the, the great place kicker who went on to play for the Bengals for so many years, he says about having a Joe Roth-type day. And he summarizes what Joe means to him. And it's essentially not to, com- not to complain, not to feel sorry for yourself, but to embrace what's out ahead of you. Uh, and people will always come up to us or communicate to us, say, yeah, have a Joe Roth type day. And I, you know, wow, that's so great. And I knew a, a mother of three kids would drop them off at school and say, all right, guys, have a Joe Roth type day today. Wow. And when you, I mean, yeah, it doesn't get any cooler than that. Yeah. And, and, and it's because again, it's, it's, it's so true and it resonates so clearly and it's simple but it's hard to pull off, and he did, and that's what we all would love to get a little piece of. And when you hear people take from the story those lessons, and that's what they like about it, that's so rewarding uh, and makes it such a fortunate occurrence to have been a part of that. So, Bob, I'm thanking you publicly because <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> one, one other thing I wanted to add what was really, really important for us during – you know, the, the whole process is that, you know, Lena Roth was in her 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And we interviewed her at her home, and then she got put into a, you know, a, a assisted living facility. And, you know, we're in post-production. You know, we've got a rough cut, you know, two hours, two and a half hours. of Like, we got to get something to Lena, you know, so she can see this, you know. This was her boy. And, you know, we ended up getting a, you know, near, you know, cutting it back a little bit further during editing, and we ended up sending her a copy. And um, she wrote back, handwritten notes. You boys are working so hard. This is so great. You know, um, you know, a couple of little editing. Did this, you know, too much Mike White. If you want to cut me out a little bit, you can as well. <laughs> but she sent me five dollars to pay for the postage set. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, and it ended up she, you know, she passed before the, you know, we did the film festival circuit, but it was just, it was great to, to be able to get her something and know that she liked it. Um, she actually said in her notes, and the, I thought the ending was excellent. Nice. Yeah, that's that seems to be the reason, you know, even when you're having a, a tough day working on it or... And, you know, you think, man, this just isn't going my way today. You know, it's stuff like that that makes makes it all worth it, you know, why you do it in the first place. Yeah. Well, and and, and there's a, a gentleman, here's another great, like, you, like what you do, you curate football stories and, and football themes, Aaron, and you do it so so well and, and with such, you know, dedication and consideration and you understand all of the, the global context that applies to all these subjects. And one of the biggest things in sports is that understanding amongst one another. And we had a gentleman uh, named Tim Rose who reached out to us out of the blue, sent us a handwritten 11-page letter, uh, you know, double-spaced. He had kept an article about Joe that was written by Skip Bayless back when the story broke in 1977. Mm. And he appreciated what Joe went through, and he saw the film on the Pac-12 network, and he just wrote us out of the blue. Well, his son, Coach Rose's son, is 
Kurt Rose is coaching in Japan. Wow. And so Kurt Rose was like a like a high like a high school or college or semi pro team and Kurt Rose showed the film, you know, to his team. So it's that internal network, that fraternity, that brotherhood, uh, that sharing the story because the themes never go out of style. They're always relevant. And Joe embodied them so authentically and dramatically. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And just the last question I have for you guys, because obviously, you know, like we talked about, there's some people who are going to be attracted to the story for the football part of it. And then there's people who are really interested in the, the human interest side of it. When people see your documentary, what's the lasting legacy of Joe Roth that you want people to take away after watching it? I think it's, you know, the inspiration of, no, say yes to life. Um, Cause that's what, that's what he did. Um, you know, he was always looking for the, looking toward the future. He was, you know, he lived life with humility and gratitude and, you know, these relevant qualities that never go out of style, courage, character, class, kindness, sportsmanship, humility, um, you know, have a Joe Rock to pick. <laughs> what about you, Phil? It, it, it is exactly what Bob said, but also uh, Tom Roth, Joe's, one of Joe's brothers, he said that to be kind and, you know, that sounds simplistic or maybe pithy, but really kindness was Joe's source code and everything he did was with kindness and with deference to other people's humanity. So that the idea of being natively kind, really like other than Mr. Rogers, Joe Roth might've been the kindest person of the last 50 years, uh, at least around these parts. And so that that's the takeaway that I, when I think of Joe, I, I try to take that away. And it's not easy, but that, that's the task at hand. Well, that, that's great to hear. And his story definitely resonates with me, and there's a lot that I took away with it, so or took away from it. So I'm glad you guys dedicated yourselves to telling his story I'm glad that I was able to come across and that we were able to have this conversation. So thank you guys very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Karen. All right, guys. Have, go have a Joe Roth type day. You too. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Peace.